in the city of London. Okay. And before that, he, he was professor of theology here at uh, in Oxford University. So if it can be said of anyone, it can, but it can truly be said uh, that we have a world-class theologian in our midst. I think you probably said of Professor Ward. <laughs> I think I've probably right. done enough. Uh, yeah. I think you've done enough. Well, that's what students are for, you know. So. <laughs> Anyway, thank you very much, Richard. And indeed, I, I do want to say that I think uh, that I want to stress that I'm talking about liberal faith. So it's not just liberalism in general, but it's what it is to have a faith, a definite commitment, and to be liberal in holding that faith. And I'm going to argue uh, that uh, Christianity is essentially liberal in the sense in which I'm going to define it. I'm going to give seven definitions of liberal, not all of which everybody might want to accept, but um, at least one of them uh, will be accepted by everybody, I think. So everybody's liberal in one sense. So there are going to be seven senses and seven reasons for being liberal. So there's seven parts to this. But uh, the first one is not one of the parts, and it's about what faith is. And I think that if you look at all the religious traditions of the, <laughs> of the world, all the main ones, uh, you will find that they do have something in common. And that thing in common is that there is a reality, the most fundamental reality of all, which has the nature of consciousness, wisdom, intelligence, bliss, compassion, and hope. And that is called by some of us God. Others, like Buddhists for example, don't call it God, but they certainly believe in a fundamental reality which uh, has the nature of consciousness and bliss. And the second part is that it's not only that it exists, <coughs> but that it's possible for us to have a conscious relationship to it which will transform our lives so that we mediate its reality in our world. Now for me that's religion, right? So there's a fundamental religious commitment which is that uh, you commit yourself to their being in a situation where there's no theoretical certainty. You commit yourself absolutely to the reality of one being of consciousness and bliss and compassion and you commit yourself to a life uh, a formation that will lead you to be conscious of that and to be able to mediate it through your life. So that's religion in general and I find a great uh, uh, sort of uh, commonality between world faiths in that general but very general sense. When you come to Christianity of course that is mediated through the person of Jesus. I think the person of Jesus actually reveals God, that ultimate conscious reality, in a new way as a being of unlimited love and reconciliation. And that revelation also carries on into the life of the Church through the Holy Spirit. So, again, that commitment becomes more defined by being a commitment to what is revealed of God in the person of Jesus and what happens in our lives as we open ourselves to the Holy Spirit. And for me, that's an absolute irrevocable commitment. Uh, but it's not a theoretical certainty. I agree with the words of Kierkegaard that faith is an objective uncertainty held to in passionate inwardness. Uh, and most of life is like that, or at least uh, it ought to be. And uh, I, if my wife were here, and she's not, so I can say it anyway, uh, <laughs> it's a bit like getting married. Uh, you make a passionate commitment with a bit of theoretical uncertainty. <laughs> 
And so it is that sort of personal commitment, and a very important part of faith is that it's, a, it's like a personal encounter. I don't want to make God too small, but to say that we, we are able to relate to that supreme spiritual reality of the universe in a very personal way. So that's the faith bit, right? Uh, and I think it's perfectly possible uh, to have an absolute commitment when you can't say you're theoretically certain. You know, we know that lots of people don't think there's a God. Well, okay, I mean, they don't. Uh, but you're not going to avoid dispute, whatever you do. You just have to live with it, right? So no theoretical certainty, but absolute practical commitment. But why liberal? Well, already that's a little bit liberal, but still, because you know, people who are really illiberal would insist on theoretical certainty when it's not possible. That's almost a definition of an illiberal person. They claim to be certain of something uh, when no theoretical certainty is possible, so they're just wrong about what they're claiming, really. <laughs> My seven bits of being... Uh, <laughs> liberals can say people are wrong. In fact, liberals say almost everybody's wrong. Uh, but we don't mind, you know, because we respect the difference, and we expect there to be difference, and we don't claim to be infallible. We just say, well, like, human diversity is very important. I think that's, uh, but it doesn't undermine your own commitment. That's the important part. So the first thing is specifically Christian, and it may be contentious, but I believe it very strongly, so I'm going to say it anyway. And that is that in Christianity, uh, a, a fundamental factor of the Christian faith is freedom from the absolute authority of any written text. Let me say it again, because, um, um, well, some people wouldn't believe that. Uh, but that a fundamental biblical and Christian principle is freedom from the absolute authority of any written text. The reason I say this is because Paul said it first. <laughs> And whoever it was, being liberal, that wrote Ephesians chapter 2, verse 15, wrote this. And I think this is as clear as you can get. Christ has abolished the law with its commandments and ordinances. There you are. That's it. Christ has abolished the law. Well, you don't need to say more than that. So that's the end of that. What is the law? The law is the Torah. It's everything written down from Genesis to Deuteronomy, and then there's a lot more in the Talmud. But anyway, there's a lot of laws. By tradition 613, in the Jewish tradition, Christ has abolished that. Now, he's abolished all of it, not just some bits of it. Some people say, oh, he abolished the bits we don't like. Uh, the bits about stoning the Amalekites and uh, stoning your own children if they get drunk, incidentally, is also a possibility, which Richard Jorkins is very fond of quoting. <laughs> but it's not just those bits which are abolished. The whole lot is abolished. So love the Lord your God with all your heart. Love your neighbours yourself. They're all abolished. Right? But that doesn't mean you don't take any notice of them. It doesn't mean they're not true. It means you don't accept them just because they're written down in a text. That's the point. You have to consider the text and decide whether these really are insights into the reality of God. And most people who've done this, both in the Bible and out of it, has been wrong. Or they've at best been imperfect in their grasp of what is required. So that, for example, monogamy, the marriage of one man and one woman, is nowhere recommended in the Bible except for bishops. Uh, <laughs> Thank <laughs> you.
but of course, by the time of Jesus, everybody accepted in, 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 uh, in the faith of the time that monogamy was the right thing to do. But it wasn't because it was in a written text. In fact, they had to deal with written texts which said it's okay to have lots of concubines and uh, you can have wives too, so that's alright. Didn't say if the wives could have lots of husbands. Nobody's thought of that very much in, in religion. So, uh, you know, the written text isn't even for a Jew. Right? You might think that Jews are bound to the written text, an Orthodox Jew is, but that's not actually true. If you look at the written text in, in, uh, in the Torah, for the most Orthodox Jew there is in the world, most of it is obsolete. All the laws about the temple, about temple rituals, about the priesthood are obsolete. All the laws about Canaan are obsolete. I mean, there might be a few Americans now who think they're not. But as a matter of fact, they are. They're all obsolete because the reason given by Rabbi Ben Hananiah in 300 AD was that we can no longer identify the six nations who are to be conquered. Right? So those, those are obsolete. So officially in Judaism, most of Torah is actually obsolete. So it's not true that you can just look at something that's written in the Old Testament and say, we have to do that you have to rather consider very carefully, well, in what light are we to interpret these statements? Now, most of Torah was written in the Bronze Age. Society has changed a little bit since the Bronze Age. Some of us have computers and even know how to work them. Uh, but, uh, you know, in a very different world, these rules need to be rethought. Uh, just a small example of that, uh, you won't find any Jew today caring very much about whether they boil a kid in the milk of its mother. That's part of Torah. <laughs> but what Jews do take seriously is that you do not mix milk and meat dishes. And one, incredibly, is the interpretation of the other. Okay, so they, the, 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 uh, the uh, saying that you mustn't mix milk and meat comes from that statement in Torah, that you mustn't boil a kid in the milk of its mother. How do you get there? Well, you need to be a rabbi to do it properly. And that makes the point that rabbinic use of the law is interpretation, it's creative. It looks at new situations, it asks how Torah is to be interpreted, and that's it. It's not inflexible at all, that's a complete misunderstanding. Just because some societies are inflexible, like Oxford, uh, <laughs> that doesn't mean that the text is inflexible. It's all about how you interpret it. That's the important thing. And it, it can be interpreted in lots of different ways. Now, when you get to Jesus, the thing changes completely because I think it's clear, I, I think it's clear, not all my colleagues agree with me about this, which is very strange, but I think it's clear that Jesus obeyed Torah completely, that he never disobeyed it. He even taught, according to Matthew chapter 5, verse 17 and 18, that anybody who taught that the least important of the 613 commandments of Torah, anybody who taught that was the least in the kingdom of heaven. Well, Paul came along and said, oh, it's all finished, you needn't obey any of it. So he's not even in the kingdom of heaven, according to that. Now, there's a bit of a puzzle there. How is it that Jesus taught you must obey even the least important bit of Torah, and the church decided... Acts chapter 15, that you needn't keep all of Torah, you needn't get circumcised, but you still have to eat kosher food, and then a little bit later, later on than the New Testament, in fact, the Christian church decided you needn't keep the Torah at all. It's not binding on any Christian. How could that happen? It was a revolution. It changed the nature of religion from a religion of law to what? To a religion of spirit. The letter kills, said Paul, but the spirit gives life. 
Christ has abolished the law in its written form, but of course Christ is the Torah in personal form. And that's why Torah became obsolete, because it's the person of Jesus Christ which shows what God is like and what we should be like. And the person of Jesus Christ is a person who reconciles, who loves, who heals, who forgives, who loves people who have a very different uh, theological opinion, who teaches the, the good Samaritan, heretics, you know, heretics, the Samaritans, the good Samaritan was a person uh, to be valued and respected, and indeed a better neighbor than all the Jewish priests. So, in the teaching of the early church, <coughs> Torah was definitely rejected, even despite the teaching of Jesus that you should keep it, but because of their insight that actually the person of Jesus had replaced the written law. And so I think the revelation of God in Christianity most fundamentally is a personal, a deeply personal revelation. When Jesus said, repent because God's rule has drawn near to you, what he was saying was, here it is in me. Okay, if I may be permitted to suggest that interpretation, that Jesus was saying God's rule is a personal rule. It's the rule of the Spirit in the heart, of which uh, was prophesied in Jeremiah. And that rule of the Spirit in the heart was fulfilled in the person of Jesus. The thing about revelation happening in a person is that it's not in particular words. Uh, the particular words you say, well, as we know, we don't really have many of the actual words of Jesus in the language in which he spoke them. Because almost certainly he spoke Aramaic, and almost certainly we don't have much Aramaic in the Bible, about five or six words. So already we've got translations, and we've not only got translations, we've got them edited, so very rarely do we have the actual words of Jesus. That doesn't mean we don't have the person of Jesus. That doesn't mean there aren't insights into what Jesus was like in the four very different Gospels. It doesn't mean that at all. There are positive things. It's about the nature of Christian revelation. It's not in words. It's in a person and in a personal relationship. Words can point to that. Words can help to evoke it in you, but they can never capture it. And you can never say, and that's why in Christianity a creed is never a statement of intellectual faith. A creed is more like a hymn that you sing because you're repeating the stories that are in the Bible in a shortened form, or in the Athanasian Creed, goodness knows what you're doing, but it's got something to do with <laughs> Plato and Aristotle and all that lot, and an attempt to do the best you can uh, to make it intellectually respectable in terms of the philosophy of the day, which we need to do again today. So, I'll just say that uh, <coughs> my point here is simply that uh, the very nature of Christian revelation, that the Word of God is not the Bible, in the Bible. The Word of God is not the Bible in the Bible. <laughs> the Word of God is the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the Word of God. And so anyone who tries to make the written text the Word of God has misunderstood what Christian revelation is. Now I'm not meaning to attack anybody particularly here. I'm just saying it's very important to see what revelation is and to see that it's personal. And therefore it's, you can never put it into words. If you try to convey what a person has uh, shown to you or done for you, the words you use will always be inadequate. And you'll always have to use lots of different metaphors and images. And different people will see that person in different ways. It's essentially difficult, ambiguous, but interesting, exciting and life transforming. But it's not saying here's some propositions and if you say these words you'll be alright and if you don't you won't. 
It's not that at all. So many ways of seeing Jesus. Four of them we've got. Uh, some of them we don't have, which were also interesting, I'm sure. So free, that's what I mean by saying freedom from the absolute authority of a written text. It's not that you want to ignore the Bible. No, not at all. It's that you want to say, if you read something in the Bible, it is never of itself and in itself binding on you. Because you need to consider it in the whole context of the Christian life, of encounter with the person of Jesus. And you might put it like this, every sentence in the Bible needs to be reinterpreted in the light of the revelation of the fullness of God in the person of Jesus. So if you read a text about going to find the Amalekites and exterminating them, and you say, now what would Jesus have uh, done to that? I think at least you wouldn't say, he would have said, yes, go to it. Uh, he would really uh, probably have said, well, um, didn't I say something about turning the other cheek the other day? And that might have something to do even with the Malachites and loving your enemies. Yeah, so everything gets transformed. Christianity was new. I mean, you can't overemphasize how radically new it was. And for a lot of Jews, that was very upsetting that the Torah should be set aside. So it's a little bit ironic that there are some Christians in the world who think we should have a new text that we obey. Just in the same way, we have a written law. And because Paul said all the written law kills and has been set aside, people say, ah, but he made some little rules about things, we must keep those. That seems rather odd. So there must be a way of discriminating texts in the Bible, and that way is by reference to the person of Christ. And if you do that... It's not going to be agreed by everybody, because there are always going to be different ways of interpreting Christ. All you can do is be as honest as you can, and say, this is how Christ seems to me when I read the Gospels. This is the Christ who is known as a spiritual presence to me. And I'm not surprised if it appears rather different to somebody else. I mean, if somebody says Christ was a terrorist, you're going to say, well, that, that's a bit extreme, even for a liberal. You know, you can't go that far. <laughs> uh, but, but if they say, well, Jesus was an orthodox keeper of the law, you say, well, that could have been. As long as it was a humane interpretation of the law, yes, that might be true. I myself think that was true. But other people, and when I was young, I was taught that Jesus gave up the law. That was what I was taught, based on one sentence in Mark, which was misinterpreted. Uh, and uh, so, you know, and I, that's within the possible perspectives of opinion. So, diversity is going to be part of personal interaction. You know, if you sit in a room with a person and you all ask your opinion of that person, I don't know if you watch Big Brother, I hope not, uh, but you'll find uh, that you get very different interpretations. But it's the same person. You don't say, oh, because they all differ, that person never existed. You just say, well, it's because you see other people in terms of what you project onto them from your own personality. So obviously different personalities are going to see things in different ways. And that's what personal revelation means. That it means that you will see God in Christ in different ways. Though you'll all be able to agree that these are the things Jesus did, these are the things Jesus said, and uh, you've got to start from there. You can't just make it all up. So that's the first point then. Uh, freedom from the law. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Galatians chapter 5 verse 1. You can tell I help in an evangelical church now because I've learned to keep quoting these things. <laughs> uh, <laughs> unlike genuine evangelicals, it takes me an awful long time to find them. <laughs> <laughs> well, 
the second point is quite short, really, and it is that, of course, one of the most important moral rules, and this one we accept because it's true, is love your neighbour as yourself. <laughs> and nobody's going to deny that's a very important part of Christianity. In fact, it's a part of most uh, religious views. Love your neighbour as yourself. Well, all I want to say is here, if you ask what does love require, then love requires understanding. That's the only simple thing I want to say about that. You don't love somebody if you don't try to understand what they mean. If you only read newspaper headlines and say that's what this person was saying, you don't love them. Okay? To love them you have to get beyond the headlines and you have to make some effort to understand how they would see things from their point of view. Now you haven't got enough time to do that, so often you just have to say, well I, I don't understand them at all. <coughs> but if you don't understand them, <coughs> at least you shouldn't hate and oppose them. Okay? So that love uh, actually makes it impossible to say of anyone initially, they are wrong and they are depraved and they are corrupt and I have nothing to learn from them. Because one important part of love is that you learn from the people you love. Love is not all giving. Uh, I think love is the ability to receive and to let people know that they have something you want to receive because they're worth it uh, and you can learn something from them. So love requires that understanding. And because human beings are very different, it requires an acceptance of human diversity. So that point is very simple. If we love, as Christians we ought to love, we ought to accept diversity. And that's why churches exist. Churches exist so that we'd be forced to meet people we don't really like and we wouldn't otherwise associate with. <laughs> and if you have a church where that's not true, it's not really a church. <laughs> so although it's nice to have a liberal group, it can't be the only group there is, because there have to be very different sorts of people. I don't think there's a liberal sort of person, but there'd be some people who wouldn't come to an event like this, and they should be in our churches. And we should be able to say to them, uh, well, um, you know, we're not agreeing with what you say, but we respect the diversity, we respect your freedom of conscience, and that doesn't stop us living together in ordinary kindness and friendship. And which means minimally, well at least we're not going to misrepresent what you say, and we're not going to stop you um, standing up for what you say, um, but we won't would like it if you didn't stop us standing for what we say either. And there's a little conspiracy in some churches, uh, or some parts of some churches, to stop people feeling free to say what they think. And that would be a pity, really, because I think it ought to be a part of the church, a community of love, that people should feel free to say what they think without feeling that somebody's going to tell them they're wrong, or at least without people telling them, you know, that uh, their view is outside the boundaries of Christianity. Uh, and so often, I think, people are afraid to say things like that because they think... Well, I remember a Malcolm Muggeridge program. Do you remember him a long time ago on television? Uh, he used to be asked about all religious questions. And he uh, uh, talked to, to a group of uh, ladies in a village church somewhere and about what they thought. And it turned out to be rather amazing, really, all sorts of funny things. And he said, don't you tell the vicar about what you think? He said, no, no, I would worry him too much. <laughs> And then Michael Muggeridge went and talked to the vicar and said, look, you went to see a lot of the college, you know all these things, don't you ever tell the congregation, oh no, that would worry them too much. <laughs> 
so there's a place for a little bit of just open honesty in saying, well, here's agnosticism, but there are things we're agnostic about, uh, things that the human mind perhaps can't cope with, just a little bit of humility. So that's about love and understanding. The third, there are seven of these, the third one is Article 21 of the 39 Articles of the Church of England. I think, uh, Bishop, it's the only one I wholeheartedly accept. Um, and uh, Article 21 says, as you all remember perfectly well, um, general councils of the church may err and have erred even in things concerning God. <laughs> now, that's in the articles of the Church of England. What does it leave us with? Not very much. Because all the creeds were actually issued by who? General councils of the church. Well, they may have heard. So we shouldn't say, I believe, we should say, I think. <laughs> well, there's a serious point there. It's a reformation principle, a fundamental reformation principle, that people should be free to dissent from any human authority. And that includes, for Protestants anyway, councils of the church and popes, and even bishops. So, free, freedom to dissent, freedom of conscience, a fundamental uh, Reformation principle. It is strange to remember that uh, um, one of the uh, popes uh, wrote a document called the Syllabus of Errors, in which he said uh, that uh, liberal thought democracy and modern thought in general is to be condemned. And also to be condemned, among the 90 things he did condemn, he condemned quite a lot at the time, um, was that there should be freedom of religious expression. Now, that wasn't all that long ago. And I think Anglicans have actually said that even longer ago, that there should only be one church in England and there shouldn't be any others. It's not very long ago where you couldn't teach in Oxford or Cambridge if you weren't an Anglican minister, in fact. It's not all that long ago, so our liberal uh, inheritance is rather new, found. But, of course, the Catholic Church in the Second Vatican Council in the 1960s quite unequivocally stated that um, Christian faith requires freedom of religious assembly, religious belief, and freedom of conscience. So it looks as though all Christians are uh, agreed on this now, and that is the one fundamental liberal position. So almost all Christians are liberal in that sense, that uh, you permit, you might even encourage freedom of conscience. Right? And if you really permit that, then you'll say, I can live with people who come to different positions than I do on various issues, moral and religious, as long as I'm convinced that they're conscientious, they're really serious, they're not just you know, choosing evil uh, or out for some selfish purpose. They're really wanting to know what is true. They're really wanting to be morally committed. And, but they might come to different decisions, and I will live with that. Uh, it's important to say you don't have to agree with them, right? Um, respecting difference doesn't mean agreeing. It means there are differences, but they won't impede our friendship and relationship. And I think that's a um, chief measure for the Church of England at this time, and for the Anglican Communion in general, that differences of theological and moral belief do not, or should not, impede friendship. And that, that's a requirement of faith. Uh, and it's a requirement which springs from the requirement of love. 
but I've never interpreted Jesus' teachings about unity, the unity of the disciples, as an institutional unity, but rather as a, a much deeper friendship uh, which accepts differences. And so there have to be different sorts of churches. We all do that, don't we, really? Go to different sorts of churches. And we know that that's true. Uh, and so we might as well just say uh, we can be friends uh, with people who hold very different views, but we mustn't force people all to like or agree about the same sorts of things. So that's the Reformation principle, freedom of conscience. Fourthly, truth. <coughs> this, uh, the search for truth. This one comes from John Stuart Mill. So it's a classical liberal position in a slightly different sense. And Mill's view was that on matters which cannot be decided unequivocally, uh, then the best way to find the truth, if you're seriously concerned for truth, is to encourage critical debate and inquiry. And that principle of critical debate and inquiry is fundamental to the British educational system. Uh, and that's what we do. If you teach religious studies in schools, you promote debate and inquiry and informed criticism. And you do not just tell people what is right. Uh, you actually try to convey to people what the scholarly opinion is or the range of opinions are and try to get people thinking for themselves about uh, the views that can be held. It must be informed. You can't just tell people to make it all up. You know, start, make up the doctrine of the Trinity and see where you get. You can't do that. So you have to know what people have said about this and make a judgment on it. But criticism is actually very important in the search for truth. The point about this is, that of course, Christianity is concerned about truth. Jesus said, I am the truth. Now, exactly what that means, I don't know. But it seems to involve that we ought to be very concerned to find the truth. And two things seem to me to be the case about this. First of all, there is an absolute truth. Right? As, a, as a liberal, I would say there definitely is an absolute truth. Uh, as, as your opinion isn't as good as mine. You know, not everybody's... Well, I didn't mean that quite. I, I, I meant uh, everybody's opinion is not equally true. Uh, yeah, it's, it can't be true for you and a different thing be true for me. Right? There's only one truth and it's absolute. But the second thing you have to say is we don't know who's got the truth. And we can't ever be sure that we have. So although there is an absolute truth, it's very difficult to decide who has it, if anybody and that's, a, that's the J.S. Mill principle, uh, that all human claims to knowledge are provisional. It's not relativism, it's not the view there is no truth or your truth is as good as mine, but it is the view that truth is very difficult to find. Uh, and it requires disagreement. Just think about the history of physics, for example. Uh, and if you thought, well, God should have just revealed the theory of relativity to Moses, now we needn't have had all this trouble. Uh, you think, well, something would be lost if that happened. I mean, uh, it's good for people to discover things for themselves. And the theory of relativity was <coughs> only discovered by a lot of argument, a lot of criticism. And in the end, fortunately, there was some empirical verification. Well, in religion, we're not going to get any ver verif verification until we're dead, so you can't really wait that long. So the difference in religion is you're never going to get conclusive verification of your beliefs. Nobody is. And that means you're always going to be stuck in the position of debate and inquiry. And that seems to me to necessitate humility about one's own view, saying, I believe this, I'm committed to this, but I can't 
be certain that it's true, and I can see that other people <coughs> can come to different conclusions, and they do, and in the end I can only say God will have to choose between us. But I presume that God will not judge either of us for having an honest opinion. So it cannot be the case. It immediately follows that nobody who conscientiously believes that there is no God after full inquiry can be condemned by God for being an atheist. That's not a Christian possibility. Nobody who decides conscientiously that Christ is not the saviour of humanity can be condemned by God for believing that. I think God would say, I'm glad you believed that conscientiously, it only just happens that I'm here and you're wrong. <laughs> so that's about how you find truth, and about uh, if you have a serious concern for truth. You will not, in fact, censor books. You will not, in fact, prevent debate. You will actually encourage discussion. You won't make everybody have discussions. I mean, it won't be compulsory in church that everybody must discuss the theory of relativity or grace versus Pelagianism or something like that. No, it's not that. It's only that churches must accept uh, that such debate is a good and necessary thing on the way to truth. And even if you don't want to take part in it, you mustn't condemn it. And you mustn't make the mistake of thinking that you don't need to have such debate in order to know the truth. Okay. So for most of us that will mean there are lots of things we're not going to make any decisions about. We're going to be agnostic because, you know, we don't read Greek for a start, so goodness knows. I've been to Bible studies, I shouldn't say this really, but I have been to Bible studies where nobody knew any Greek at all, but they spent hours discussing the meaning of some text in English. Complete waste of time. <laughs> but I didn't say that. It's not a complete waste of time, that was an exaggeration. But, it, <laughs> but if you're trying to get to the real meaning of the text and it's in a different language, you know, then you're in trouble. You're not going to get the real meaning. You can still get spiritual you know, illumination from it. What would be wrong is to say, I've got the correct interpretation. That's what would be wrong. You could say, this is how the text speaks to me. But you have to say, well, of course, I don't know that I understand it properly, and who knows what they had in mind or what it might say to somebody else. So, again, you need the conversation to find out how it speaks to other people. And this is sort of my fifth one. The fourth one is about truth requiring debate and criticism. The fifth one is about um, the nature of faith. There's an old medieval definition of faith as the acceptance as true on authority of certain propositions. So you accept certain truths on the authority of the Church or the Bible. Martin Luther rejected that definition of faith. And Luther defined faith as personal trust in Jesus Christ. And that's very different. Faith as personal trust doesn't entail any particular beliefs, except the very vague one, that there is somebody called Jesus and that he's quite a good guy. Okay, so that's all right. You need some beliefs. But you don't need to know that Jesus was the second person co-equal of the Father and the Holy Spirit in the Trinity. You don't need to know that. That may or may not be true. You can be agnostic about that. Why not? Most theologians are. <laughs> but you should say what's important about faith is that it is a transforming encounter with God in Christ. So there is uh, a very strong personal and existential basis for faith, but it's faith as encounter, not faith as assent to a proposition. Right. 
So I'm putting the stress here on, on the, the way in which faith is known by its fruits of peace and love and joy and patience and gratitude and generosity. That's how faith is known. When you have faith, these are the things that are produced in human lives. Whereas, as a very eminent theologian once said to me, theologians aren't usually very nice people. Which means that intellectual acuteness is not one of the gifts of the spirit. <laughs> okay, so that's just the, the basis for faith. It's, it's a question that, I don't know whether it is liberal, but you could say a distinctively liberal approach to it, though it was also Martin Luther's, is to say that faith really is personal transformation by the power of God. It's not acceptance of intellectual propositions. There's some relationship between those two things, but it's rather vague and flexible. Sixthly, I've only got two more to go. <coughs> Sixthly, well, the sixth consideration, which you might want to call a liberal consideration, is just the way in which our knowledge about the world has changed completely since the time in which the Bible was written. When the Bible was written, parts of the Bible were written, the earth was thought to be a flat disk floating on a big sea. And the stars were thought to be hung on a bowl, uh, which was just hanging around above the earth. There were no extraterrestrial beings, there were no galaxies, um, there, there was no Big Bang, no, there was hardly anything. Just to remind ourselves how recent this is, the, the structure of DNA, which was uncovered by a friend of mine. Now, I always ask this question because nobody's ever heard of him. Um, the structure of DNA, three people got the Nobel Prize for uncovering the uh, structure of DNA. Everybody knows two of them. The two are Watson and Crick. Who is the third man? He was my friend. So it's very sad that nobody else knows who he is. I've forgotten his name. <laughs> he actually wrote a book called The Third Man to put things straight and nobody bought it. <laughs> so I'll leave you to think about that. There, was three, there were three people who, and the third one was at King's College London, in fact. Maurice Wilkins was his name, uh, and he was the boss of Rosalind Franklin, whom some of you might have heard of. But anyway, that's just a, by the way. But that was 1953, right? Now, for some of you, that might be a long time ago. But for me, it's just last night. And in, 19, <laughs> in 1953, the structure of DNA was discovered. Before that, nobody knew, despite Darwin and all that, nobody knew how hereditary worked. And that is something which is transforming the world. And in the same way, in 1953, the smallest computer there was took up a room bigger than this. So if you think how quickly things are changing, uh, then it wouldn't be surprising if some of our knowledge was different from that of the biblical writers. And you have to ask, well, how does <coughs> religious belief fit into such a rapidly changing world? And I suppose a liberal in this sense might be defined as somebody who wants to take seriously well-established scientific theories and wants to see how they relate to ancient religious beliefs and who expects that there will be some differences. But you're not compelled to say what those differences are. It's just you, part of your faith will be, I'm not going to keep my faith whatever modern science says. I'm going to take modern science into account. 
I'll give you just one example of this, which is very obvious. If you accept the theory of evolution, which virtually every biologist does, then you, in, uh, in uh, all the ones I know anyway, uh, and you ask, uh, what about original sin? Uh, what about the fall? Is it true that death came about through the sin of Adam? You will have to rethink that completely. You have to say, no, death was there with the dinosaurs long before Adam was. So death is not the result of Adam's sin. Death was there a long time before. What about original sin? That actually contradicts uh, the Darwinian doctrine uh, that you cannot acquire, or you cannot inherit acquired characteristics. Okay? So if you acquire a characteristic, you become different through something you do, like you do exercises in the gym and you get very muscular, your children will not inherit and cannot inherit all that exercise. It was a complete waste of time. <laughs> Because what your children inherit is set in, at the moment of your own birth, right? Um, it's in your sex cells, and the, it, what you do in the gym will not make the slightest difference. Of course, the fact you're healthy might make a difference to their education and so on, but, but genetically it will not make any difference. So, original sin, if somebody put that in the form of through Adam and his descendants, because of something that Adam did, his descendants were genetically impaired, that contradicts all evolutionary theory. So, again, you've got to rethink that. So, you can't think about that. So, that's just one example. Um, let me remind you, in case you feel uncomfortable with getting rid of original sin, because you like it so much, um, that a lot of Christians in the world have never believed in original sin, mostly the Eastern Orthodox churches, who do not accept that doctrine. It's a doctrine of Augustine, which has passed into the Latin tradition, and you will not find it in the Orthodox churches. So, it's perfectly orthodox not to believe in original sin. <laughs> If that makes you feel happier. But in general, the point is, well, science is going to make a difference. We're in a universe where, with a bit of luck, we're going to exist on this planet for a few billion years, perhaps. Uh, and if we escape from this planet, we could exist for many billions of years, or something like us do, uh, would. Uh, I'm, I know one uh, uh, physicist who says, uh, because of evolution, in another million years, or let's make it 10 million years, it's not very long, cosmically, in another 10 million years, it's most unlikely that there will be any human beings around, except possibly in zoos. Because they will have evolved a new species. Well, Christianity has to take this into account. What are you going to do about that? You know, you, you read bits of the Bible and you find out uh, the human beings seem to be the centre of the universe and when, when they come to an end, the universe has stopped. But now, physicists will say, no, that's not true. Humans are going to involve. We're going to have transhumans. We're going to have super-intelligent beings who have no relation to the human species at all, just as we have no relation to chimpanzees. Well, a little bit of relation. So, uh, what do Christians do with that? Where does Jesus fit into that? I think there are good answers to all these questions, but the fact is they have to be faced. Uh, and so you have to say, well, when the early theologians in the 4th to the 8th centuries AD tried to fit their faith in Christ and the revelation of God in Christ into the best scientific views of the day, they came up with views which were bound to be wrong, because their science was wrong. Aristotle was the favourite scientist and everything he said was wrong. Uh, <laughs> So we live in a world where now, probably, we're not sure who's right anymore, but it could be Heisenberg, Niels Bohr, Albert Einstein, Isaac Newton. Yes, they're the people who've probably got it right. So your Christianity has to come to terms with that new worldview. Now, this is not a terribly liberal thing to do, but it could be called liberal because you're prepared to rephrase your faith in terms of a of new knowledge of what the universe is like. Now, I'm sure it can be done. 
and it's a positive and exciting thing to do. And what I'd like to see Christians doing is doing that, of saying, look, we're going to take science at the cutting edge, and we're going to put God right on that cutting edge. We're not going to be saying, there's science, oh, we're terribly worried, we better be creationists, we better think all biology is wrong and all evolution is wrong. We're going to be defensive all the time. Let's keep away from everything that's taught in schools about science. That's not a good message to be conveying if you think that God is a rational, intelligent creator of a wonderfully beautiful universe and that the scientists have got it all wrong. It's a much more positive message to say science is discovering amazing new facts about the glory of God as revealed in, in creation and the beauty of mathematical laws and the amazing complexity of DNA and so on. And it's almost impossible to know that and not be struck by the intelligence that underlies the nature of the universe. And Christianity speaks about that. And what Christianity says is it's not only intelligence, it's intelligent love. And there is a destiny for beings, whether human or not, in this universe, who can become conscious of the creator of all material things. Now, that's an exciting message, I think, that uh, consciousness, intelligence, wisdom, is at the root of reality, and science is uncovering it in new ways. So, in other words, the new is good. Uh, we've got to get out of the way of thinking. If it's the older it is, the better. Now, there's still people who think if, if a view is very old, that's a better view. Okay? Uh, if, it, if you've got the secret of the Great Pyramids, that's going to be better than having the secret of DNA. But it's not true. It's the new which is more likely to be true. Okay. And if that's true, then of course what you say is, we still have our personal relation to the God revealed in Jesus Christ through the present action of the Holy Spirit. Of course. None of that tells us how big the universe is, and it glorifies God more to know the universe is millions of times bigger than we ever thought, and that there are probably intelligent beings living in other universes with whom God is equally concerned. That's a greater God, and it's a greater reverence for the created universe, or multiverse, or megaverse, or whatever it is nowadays. So, taking science seriously, that's a very important part of faith. And it means... You can no longer say faith is keeping the old views. You can't say that. You keep the experience of God, but your view of the context in which that experience occurs, that has to be new, because knowledge just is new now. Lastly then, seventhly, uh, another little definition of liberal, and another reason for being liberal, is the concept of salvation. Christianity is certainly about salvation. But if you look at the notion of salvation in the Old Testament, the notion of salvation is the salvation of the community, the people of Israel, from the oppression and injustice of its enemies. Salvation wasn't an individual thing. For a Jew it wouldn't make sense to say one person could be saved and other people couldn't. That makes no sense. I mean, the whole nation is saved, or nobody is. And the nation is saved from oppression and injustice. So, this is where liberalism turns into liberation. There's a distinctively liberal view of salvation, which is that salvation is material as well as spiritual, and you can't have the one without the other. And as the Salvation Army has always said, there's no point preaching to men's souls if they haven't got enough to eat. So the first thing you do is give them food and clothing and, if possible, justice. And that's a Christian 
requirement. If you look at the big problems in the world today, it's ecology, it's the survival of the planet, it's what we do with our own resources. It is the vast injustice by which we buy cheap clothes at the price of child labor elsewhere. It is the tribalism which makes us fear and hate other cultures and people who are different from us. Those are the major world problems. Does Christianity address these? Well, I think it does. But the peculiar emphasis I'm wanting to draw attention to, which is growing in the Christian churches, it's not at all uh, in retreat, is a serious concern that the church should be not the place where some people are saved out of the horror of the world. The church should be the place which is transforming the world to become more a place that God wants it to be, where all human beings, and in fact all sentient beings, flourish. So salvation is the flourishing of all sentient beings. Until, until that happens, salvation hasn't come. Okay? And it's no use saying, I'm saved. You know that old question, are you saved? What a selfish question. Um, you know, it's like people who pray for a car parking space. Uh, because if you were a Christian, you'd pray that the person in front of you got the car parking space. <laughs> And the same way to ask if you're saved is a terribly self-interested question. Uh, you should be asking the question, is the world saved? And by that you'd mean, is it fulfilled? Do humans flourish? Do animals flourish? Does the creation flourish? To which the answer is no. But how could it be? Has Christ come to do that? And has Christ come to do that through the work of the Holy Spirit, working through even people like us? Well, that's a religious task that God requires us to be co-creators with God in saving the world, in making the world consciously aware of a God who wills the flourishing of all creation. Now, some people call that humanism, but of course it is humanism, but it's religious humanism, it's Christian humanism. Christians want the flourishing of humanity, but it's more than humanism because Christians want the flourishing of the whole universe. So Christians have a wide view of how creation should flourish. And I think that's a liberal, positive message. That salvation, I just call it liberal because as against views which say salvation is only about getting some people out of the mess the world is in. Right? Because rather it's saying no, salvation is about changing the mess that the world is in. And God wanted to do this through us. And that's why the church was founded. That's why the church came about. That we should be the hands and the feet and the eyes and the ears of Christ. As the body of Christ, the church should do what Jesus did. Heal, reconcile and uh, speak forgiveness to nations. And I think the church, at least in part, has always done that, and still does. So, to conclude, I don't think liberalism is a new sect that we're starting up here. I think Christianity has always been liberal. But at times, it's had difficulty with this, because it gets uh, sidetracked by doctrines of particular interpretation of the Bible, for example, said to be infallible or inerrant, or I'm right and everybody else is wrong. And there are ways in which religions can lead people to be more intolerant uh, and feel more superior to other people. And, uh, it, of course, it shouldn't do that. So let me just recapitulate the seven points I've made about a very positive liberal approach, which I think any Christian can adopt, whether they're evangelical or Catholic or Anglican, whatever. But the Anglican Church has liberalism stated as one of its major traditions, and it's always been a tradition of the Anglican Church, so it's important to retain it. And the seven points were simply these. First of all, the New Testament seems to teach that we are free from the law. 
we need to think through exactly what that means. And I think it means we are free to become more like the person of Christ, but not to obey the rules of the law. And secondly, uh, love of neighbour requires understanding of neighbour, and that requires really respect for the views of others and an attempt to accept their diversity. Thirdly, the Reformation principle, <coughs> you always have the right to dissent. You always have freedom of conscience. We must make sure that is true. It is true in Britain, I think. There are many countries in the world where it's not true. Uh, fourthly, that a serious concern for truth requires that we encourage informed, critical inquiry in our churches at some appropriate place. Uh, we say it is important to be critical, not to be defensive, but to face the strongest criticisms. And only in that way can we say we're really concerned about truth. We're not going to hide. Fifthly, that the nature of faith is personal encounter. It's transformation of life. It is growing in love and joy and peace. And that's what faith is about. <coughs> it's about God being known by us and working through us. But it's not about the acceptance of a set of intellectual propositions. Sixthly, the knowledge of the world that we have today is fantastically different than it was 50 years ago even. We have to take that into account. But indeed, there's lots of work being done on this. There are lots of Christians who are themselves at the forefront uh, of scientific uh, discovery and inquiry. Francis Collins being one of the, the, the director of the Human Genome Project, for example, a very committed Christian. And uh, so there are lots of people who, who are doing this job of relating Christian faith to new knowledge. And seventhly, that salvation is really not just for the few. Uh, salvation is, it is for the few, but in this sense, it is for the few to save the world. It is not for the few to be saved. Right. And if we have a calling and a vocation, it is that we should work for human fulfilment throughout the world. So that's what I think liberalism is, and that's what I, why I think liberals don't have to be a separate part of the church. But these things need to be encouraged and sustained when they are imperiled, as they might be for various reasons. So that we should always speak <coughs> for tolerance, for understanding, for truth, for compassion and for love. Who could be against those things? <laughs> I'll be very happy to take questions. We can go on to about quarter past four, ten past yes, maybe. Yes. It's about ten past four, say. So. We've got to uh, leave about quarter past seven yourself. So yeah. Uh, we yep. And that's when we're going to be doing. Unless I have to do another talk. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no. So well, I'll leave you to. Okay. Time. Yeah. Any uh, comments? Welcome. Um, not a question, but right. re expand on your idea of original sin. Yeah, I did it rather quickly, yes. In fact, it's all very well put out by F.R. Tennant, Frederick Tennant, and in a book on original sin in 1920, I think. And he, he, really did, he was an Anglican, he did a very good job on it. So I'm just repeating what he said. Uh, and that's, um, at some point early in the history of pre hominids, huh? Of, of very early human beings, perhaps. 
there came a time when there was, for the first time on earth, a genuine moral choice to do what is good for its own sake or to choose the selfish option, right? The moral choice between good and evil. There must have been a first moment at which that actually occurred, right? might not have been Adam and Eve, but there must have been some point at which moral choice became possible. And uh, <coughs> I think a revised doctrine of original sin would say, well, early human beings, our mass, opted for self over goodness. They opted for, already inbred genetically into human beings, was lust and aggression, because only because they were lustful had they propagated lots of offspring, and only because they were aggressive had they wiped out the competing species. So lust and aggression were necessary to human you know, dominance on the planet. So was limited altruism, of course, uh, and cooperation. So genetically inbred into human beings were these inclinations, lust, cooperation, uh, and moral choice came when they had some degree, however small, of choice between these. And if you believe in original sin, you'll think that human beings, our mass, made the wrong choice. They chose lust and aggression rather than cooperation and altruism. And since then, <coughs> you know that genes get switched on by culture. Okay, you have a genetic inheritance. But which genes get switched on and operate depends on the culture in which you live. And the culture in which we now live is such that our genes for lust and aggression get switched on as soon as we're born. And they're sustained by advertising for the rest of our lives. Uh, greed is good. That's actually an advertisement uh, for a car. Can't remember which one. I'm glad to say. Uh, so, uh, so yes, the whole of our culture encourages this. So, in a sense, it's genetic. You know, in a sense, Augustine was right. In a sense, I mean, there are genes encouraging lust and aggression, but it's also cultural in that it, uh, that's how those genes get switched on. So, original sin means this. If I can put it in a nutshell, that we are all now born into a society which makes it very difficult for us to be good and impossible for us to be perfect. That's Tennant's uh, explanation, anyway, <laughs> which I think. Um, that was the golden age of Anglican theology, actually, in 1920s and 30s. It was fantastic, and they, it's a pity they've all been forgotten now. I'm a bit nervous about this, but I have always felt that it's impossible that God blames us for that. For? For being born like that. Oh, yeah, I absolutely agree. And yet, that seems to be the implication of so much... Um, Biblical and church teaching in the past. Well, it's what we do with it. But you know, the yeah. is you are disgusting and evil and sinful. Yeah. And that's the There's no reason why Christians should ever have thought that at all. Uh, and the Orthodox Christians, don't right? on that. I know. But it's a peculiarly Western sort of approach for some reason. Take a lot of historical research to try and identify why. But of course, in the Christian tradition, there's an equally strong ten tendency to say God is within you because God is everywhere. The Holy Spirit works within you, so you are born uh, with God's Spirit already present within you. The, the earlier baptismal prayers were pretty nasty. You know, this child is. Yes. Yes. I think you need to distinguish two things. One is original sin, that is the fact that uh, you're not clearly aware of God and you don't find it easy to do what is good. And the other is original guilt, which is that God blames you for that. Now, Augustine believed in both. Uh, and I think you can say, I don't at all believe in original guilt, at all, in any sense. 
but relation sen I can give an, uh, an intelligible exactly, meaning. Yes. Yeah. As you said, that's very clear. Yeah. Are we then to blame for it? Not personally, no. And blame, that's why, I think that's part of the reason why Jesus always taught you should not judge other people because how, how do you know what they can help and what they can't help you? Have, you have no idea at all. Um, and I think God cannot be a more severe judge than Jesus taught other people to be. Right? <laughs> Which is, how many times do you forgive? <laughs> Forever. Yeah, 70 times 7. Um, given the sort of rise of uh, the apparent rise of religious fundamentalism and also increasingly hostile secular critiques of religion generally, have you got any ideas about what how liberal Christianity can make its voice heard? Well, um I think liberal Christianity is there and is thriving, actually. I don't think it's just uh, coming about. It's only that it's feeling um, vulnerable <laughs> um, because I think some groups who call themselves Puritan fundamentalists um, are claiming to have the one and only Christian interpretation of truth and they're making a lot of publicity. And the newspapers of course like arguments. That's, that's, you know, if, if you say church is full of love and peace you're not going to make the Guardian. Uh, but if you say something else like big row erupts <laughs> that's going to make the front page uh, so it's partly what the press does the press forces or is a larger force certain options to, to seem more important than they are so I don't think fundamentalism is at all important I think it's a very temporary uh, aberrant uh, distinctively 20th century uh, view which has no ancient lineage at all no roots in church tradition and which will die as quickly as it's grown. So but it is provoking the secular response, isn't it? Oh, yes. Well, Dawkins is one of the great missionaries for the Christian church. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, look at... I confess to you, I've written a reply to Richard Dawkins, which will be out in September. <laughs> Almost all my friends have written replies to Richard. I mean... <laughs> it's a lifetime's occupation, you know. Thank you, Richard. <laughs> And who takes them seriously? I mean, really, if you've read The God Delusion, uh, it's a very, very bad book. And I would fail it in a first-year philosophy exam. <laughs> <laughs> but don't you think, I mean, only people who have some a connection with Christianity can see that it's a bad book. The danger is that people who don't have a connection with Christianity just don't know. Yeah, because you don't know how many people read the book. <laughs> it's, it's a bit like a brief history of time. Uh, it's just that Richard Dawkins wrote this book, and it's the book you buy. There is something about the sorts of books people buy, which is very interesting. That's been on the bestseller list since it came out. But again, I think it's the shock factor. You know, saying Christianity is true just doesn't shock anybody. It's just not shocking. I'm trying to think of a way of making it shocking, but I can't, <laughs> I, I can't really. But saying God is a delusion, that still, isn't it wonderful that it still shocks people? <laughs> you think, well, that's amazing. So, I think most of the copies of the God delusion have been bought by Baptist ministers who wanted to see what it was all about <laughs> and refute it in their sermons. <laughs> Am I taking that too slightly? Do you think? I mean, they're, they're so bad. Christ Sorry? It's very influential in summertime. In summertime? <laughs> How do you know? Well, I'm the vicar of summertime. 
no reply to that. <laughs> you mean you meet people who really think it's a good book and it's influenced them? Yes. Yes. So there are people. Summertime has quite a high factor of people who are just generally very antagonistic to the church in oh, general. Right. And you know they they do. I mean, I don't think they've seriously read it because it is. I mean, I've read about half of it. It is ridiculous, but. Um, it corroborates their feelings. They pick up what they hear in the press and use it to corroborate their feelings. Yeah, it could be that Richard Dawkins is a big name and a good writer on science, and it could be he's a sort of authority figure. If he thinks that, then it's thinkable. You know, I think it's probably that rather than what he says, because people like Anthony Kenny, you know, who's probably the best philosopher in Britain, says, uh, well, uh, no, I won't tell you what he says. <laughs> Might be libelous. <laughs> <laughs> but okay, okay, yeah. But there are lots of replies coming out. Yes, I mean, they don't read do they? No, no, can't. <laughs> That's true. Well, if you can think of a title that would sell the book uh, Richard Dawkins, Sex and God. <laughs> it's very difficult to think of a provocative religious title. Yeah, okay. We pray for some time. <laughs> can, can I turn a little bit esoteric? What, what, what are your views on the rationality of human beings in, in respect of God and God's rationality? Well, I would have thought it's <coughs> fairly clear, I think, that God is said to be rational in the Bible, that God creates the universe through the Logos, through, through the reason, which is Christ, and that Christ is the reason of God incarnate. Uh, and we are made in the image of God, so we must be rational as well. So I thought, uh, you know, the initial supposition is that the universe must be intelligible, rational, elegant and beautiful, which it is, uh, and that human beings must be inherently rational insofar as they share the image of God. At the same hierarchical level as God? Or... Human beings? <laughs> Uh, no, no, no. Um, but they, they would share, they would sh I mean, uh, I think the image could be very faint. <laughs> right? uh, but but the, uh, I think the Christian view is an enhancement of human life, not a denigration of it. All this, I'm a miserable worm stuff, is not really in the New Testament. The New Testament is, this is good news. You are a miserable worm. Right, that's not what it says. It says this is good news. <laughs> this is good news. You are a child of God. Oh, we don't know. How do you know? He might have been. He might have. Well, yeah, there were only letters that he wrote to people. I mean, uh, <laughs> having a bad day, you know. I think Paul in Romans, if Paul wrote Romans, um, he certainly wrote parts of it, I believe. Um, I had a colleague who wrote a, a book called Paul's Postcard to the Romans. <laughs> but anyway, um, I think that's a very happy book. The freedom, freedom and joy and new life in the spirit. Paul's full of that, isn't he? I, yeah, yeah. So, so. <laughs> Question at the back, and then there's one there. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a bit delayed because it's not a question of sense. I put my hand up. But going back to the Vicar of Summertime's um, thoughts and the question on my left of 
how could we make the liberal voice heard? Yeah. Um, given that the deride of Richard Dawkins is a terribly popular book read by massive or bought by massive, <coughs> yeah. how could we produce a book that was as attractive so that he could respond to the things that he rides on, which are some very legitimate hatred or fundamentalism in, in, in large part? So could we find a way so that people of Summertown and elsewhere have something more attractive to read that could be presented <clears throat> from this angle, from the angle of the group of people here? Well, my publishers would be very interested to know <laughs> if you could find such a way. Isn't that the question that the lady on the left is asking? That yeah. We haven't yet found a way, a voice that, that, can be, that has been found by the secular... Um, no, I think the truth is it would have to be somebody very it would have to be a celebrity right that's the truth and it would have to be a celebrity who had just got converted from a life of you know terrible drug taking and everything but that would be same, the same as the fundamentalist no it wouldn't, no not at all I, I don't think that's true, I, I think you could uh, I mean I was converted you know, for instance, um, uh, so it's not true that you're bound to be converted to fundamentalism. You could, uh, no. <laughs> um, yeah. Just set me in order. There's one. Uh, thank you for your words. Um, I resonate deeply with um, much of what you had to say. <clears throat> I think that um, currently the world, um, largely because of the. Uh, the sharing of information, the ability to, to know so much these days um, is, is increasing. Much of the world is living with a lot of fear. And of course, the, the simple, easy response to fear is to grasp at simple solutions. Um, and I've served in two provinces of the Anglican Church, and, and I see that fear uh, within the Anglican Church. And I'm seeing the Anglican Church becoming something unfamiliar with very strident voices, uh, with a lot of powerful backing and a lot of money, um, beginning to have the voices that are dominating. Um, I served in America, I see that happening there, and I certainly see beginning to see it happening now I've returned here. So I'm wondering if you have, Professor, any words for us as Anglicans seeking that middle way, uh, that inclusive way, um, much like some of the other questions perhaps, but... Yeah. Um, where I think there is a, a beleaguered sense amongst some of my brothers and sisters. Right. Well, I think I should say my own Christian ministry has been in places where I've happened to be living. I've always been non-stipendary, and I always helped in the local church where I've been. And... Uh, I have, I've been in very Anglo-Catholic churches and very evangelical churches and others. And uh, my feeling has always been that a large number of the people in those congregations are actually liberal, quite strongly liberal, but they don't always have a loud voice. And they sometimes don't say what they think, and they sometimes feel they can't really say what they think, but they still go on thinking it. Um, so I think the Anglican Church is actually in good heart, but is not saying so. 
and is a, uh, but again, it's a question of publicity. It's, it's, it's how you get across the message. I mean, every church I've been in has been wonderful, I have to say. You know, I, but the last one was Christchurch Cathedral. Actually, the present one uh, is St. Michael's Cumnor, if anybody knows where that is. Uh, it's an evangelical church, and uh, it's a wonderful church. Some people there have quite strong, you know, evangelical views. They would think that all the stories about Jesus are true, that he turned water into wine, etc., uh, I have no problem with that because it doesn't make any difference to me. You know, uh, the only things that matter are the things that would make a difference. If they begin to say you can't do this or we're not going to have that person in the church, so all you need is churches which are able to live together with people whose views are not quite the same and acceptance, an acceptance of the hopeful agnostic in the community. And I think most Anglicans probably have always been hopeful agnostics because most human beings actually are. So it's just a question of honesty. And patience, I think, is very important too. But to be patient um, and, and think, well, we'll ride through a lot of the stuff that's going on because it'll self-destruct. And to remain faithful to the knowledge of God that you have in Christ. So, I mean, maybe for what, you know, that it's, it's to keep your eyes on eternity and on God and really believe uh, that God will make the divine being known as God wants to. And as long as we don't positively obstruct it, that's what we're to do. So, right? so not to be disturbed by things that look uh, as though... I mean, you speak about your experience in America. There's a very good article by Giles Fraser in The Guardian. Is it today? or was it, I don't know what day it is anymore. It was yesterday about his experience in America. Um, a good, an old student of mine um, uh, is now principal of the Virginia Theological Seminary in America. That's one of the major evangelical seminaries, and he, you know, is uh, would uh, agree with you know, about forty-five percent of what I've said today. So I, I think that's a triumph, basically. So there, there is heart. There is heart in, in liberal movements. I don't think liberalism should be a separate church at all. It just movements for liberal thought within whatever tradition you're in. And uh, I suppose it needs courage also to say things like that when you feel somebody might be hostile to you, but never to be hostile. To build bridges, as Richard puts it in, in this excellent document. And people who build bridges, they can't be thought of as unchristian, because that's what Christians are supposed to do. So, hang on in there, I suppose. It's and there are lots of good, really good parts of the church, and lots of flourishing parts of the church, um, and uh, lots of creative things happening too. And I think it will get stronger. Why do I think that? Well, I, I see it in parts getting stronger. Well, just going the order of the hand, there's one here and there's one over there, I think, yes. I'm just saying from a student point of view, to touch on that, that right. um, I don't think you have to worry about liberalism not going to emerge, because I think there's only so much further that fundamentalism, fundamentalism carry on in our generation, because there's so much, like... <laughs> Everyone's so open now to everything that anything that is excluded, people are just like, why are you excluding that? So, fundamentalism can only go so much further before our generation is going to be like, oh, that's not going to work anymore. So, liberalism will emerge whether fundamentalists like it or not. Right. Whether we like it or not, it's going to happen. So, 
Yeah, I think on the whole, would it be true to say that, uh, sound terrible, your generation is, uh, is just much more open to lots of different ways of thinking than any previous generation ever has been? Anyone who's not open is there in the minority. Like, from coming, I mean, go to Leicester University, and anyone who's against anything, you just can't, you can't be like that, because you'll get, like, you'll get kind of put aside because you're being prejudiced against people. So there's no way that you carry on yeah. from, like, a student point of view. I don't know whether... Yeah, I agree. Entirely. Right. So the problem is not the fundamentalists, because mm. just let them get on with it. The problem is how to get... The, the free-thinking people to think that religion is concerned with what they think. That's the difficulty, really. It's all linked, it's just... Yeah. I think. need to do today, for our age. Yeah. Yeah. Somehow. <laughs> yeah? I think that's right. It's the somehow that's so difficult. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Thank you. It's nice to have a uh, generational uh, viewpoint there. A question. I saw hands. I wish it was the same hand. Yeah. I think that there's several comments that we need a, a, um, kind of written response to, to Dawkins and to other people. Um, and I, I'm very much of the opinion that the people I know who've read the book, and I've read it myself, <coughs> and I, like you, I found it I just found it almost unreadable because it's so bad. But, but the people who I know who've really enjoyed it, and the people I really respect, are already committed in that particular area. Right. You know, yeah. they, so, but I th- <coughs> and I could, I could spend, or we could all spend a lot of time having intellectual arguments with these people, and I think that would be a pretty much a waste of energy <coughs> and effort. I'm not saying that things mm. shouldn't be, people like yourself shouldn't respond to it, because I think it's important that there is a response. But on a general level, we have to look at what is it that um, actually changes our lives and opens us up to Christ and to being fully human. Yeah. And, and actually just, I think, engaging with people in a different way would be a much more positive thing. And particularly in the context of what I see as a coming, although we've got young people saying that everyone's become more liberal, I think we're entering a period of history myself, because of the environmental crisis particularly, but other things that you've mentioned, which could become quite frightening. And at that stage, the things that are going to matter are how many people are actually fully able to... Um, uh, engage with their neighbours and their community in a way which is truthful and loving. And, and so that is, um, for me, hmm. is a much more important thing. I, I think it's quite a diversion to end up having a lot of arguments, intellectual arguments with people, um, about whether God exists or not. I mean, it's, that's not going to prove anything. Uh, no, that's, uh, I think that's probably true. But there are a lot of people who have what I would call an obsolete view of Christianity. I don't mean the fundamentalist view, just an obsolete view. And, and uh, things that Christians on the whole don't believe at all. No, I agree, and I think that should be answered. Yeah. Whether people listen to it or not is going to be a completely different thing. Yeah. And the idea that we have to get a celebrity to promote yeah. this idea, I think it's bonkers, you know. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> <laughs> it's just, yeah. forget it, you know answer it, but then in, in the actual thing that's going to convince people of Summertown or the other people is actually going to be the interactions that we have, and it may take a long time. Maybe mm-hmm. we should yeah. take a dramatic very experience for Richard Dawkins. I think he would be the best person to do it. Yep. Yep. Oh, Richard, John. Nice simple question. Um, 
I have thought about that, and I haven't a clue. Um, I think if I were him, I would uh, say nothing. <laughs> what advice would you have given two days ago, then? Ah, well... Before he said it, would you say, don't say it? Yes, absolutely, yes. But, um, but that's largely because... I think if you look at... Uh, what he actually said. Uh, there's nothing in it that isn't already enshrined in British life. Uh, I mean, there are, there are, there's the Beth Din for Jews, which you can go to and have your marital affairs worked out in a Jewish way. And Muslims actually do that anyway on their own. The Chinese do it, Chinese, and police don't interfere. Lots of things happen, and the police don't concern themselves with it. Uh, but he used the dangerous word Sharia. And uh, I think that's dangerous just because people don't know what it is and see so many bad examples of interpreting it. So that's why it's dangerous, really. Um, so, again, uh, it could... Yeah, it'll be interesting. I, I, I wouldn't advise the Archbishop of Canterbury. I mean, uh, he didn't want the job. I wouldn't have dreamt of doing the job, so I'm certainly not going to advise him. <laughs> It's, I mean, it's just a position you can't win in, I think, really. And, uh, yeah, I think being a bishop is, is terribly difficult. Being a professor is very easy, because in the end, people expect you to say outrageous things. That, you know, that's your job. But, uh, they, so it's enjoyable, you know, you can get away with it. But if you're a bishop, you can't. I, I, I sympathize. <laughs> Yes, that's true. He can write it out. There's a question here. How I was converted? No, no. Uh, well, uh, well, it's all a bit complicated, of course. But, uh, uh, but the bones of it, I was converted in a straightforward evangelical way of, of people saying, "Ask Christ to come into your life and uh, change it." And, to my astonishment, it did. <laughs> so, I've, so I suppose I'd say there was a, there was a spiritual power which certainly <coughs> reoriented my motivations. I was in the Air Force at the time, Richard. And um, uh, so it didn't make me a saint, you know, but it, it certainly changed the sorts of ways I was thinking about living and things like that. So it had a, a profound effect. And I felt it as a spiritual power as from without, and I identified this with the risen Christ. And, yeah, so it was a, it was a traumatic experience of, of a rather nice sort. But I don't, I don't think that's a condition of being a Christian. No, no, I just felt... Being in the Air Force. <laughs> 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 Much is it that potentially these propositions and creedal statements 
aren't really about science at all, but are actually about the way we use language to help us structure our thinking and make sense of things. Yeah. How much does that actually promote encounter with the person of Christ, who isn't going to be sitting next to me in this room, is it? No, I think they, I think uh, they could and, and they should. It just sometimes uh, they get formulated as in the Athanasian Creed in in terms which are very difficult to understand. And I think when you get to the stage of priests being afraid to preach on Trinity Sunday, you've got a problem <laughs> uh, because it should be a glorious opportunity. But uh, I've heard so many people say, "Oh dear, I've got to preach on Trinity Sunday," and you know you think. Why, why, why are we afraid? It's because it's, it's become so technical in terms of, frankly, obsolete philosophy. And it's, it's in that, I mean, Aristotelian or Platonic philosophy. Um, and it would need to be done in a very different way. And there, haven't, there are no philosophers in the modern world who have the stature that Plato and Aristotle had in the early medieval world. So we haven't got a conceptual framework that's friendly for us to use. Uh, I think the theologian who tried most was Karl Rahner. And if you've ever tried to read Karl Rahner, <laughs> you see that it's rather difficult. <laughs> that is, you know, it's just Aristotle had this amazing authority, and uh, nobody has now. Philosophy is very much splintered up, so the, there's no background. Yeah. Two questions, one at the back and then... I'm probably not the only one who feels they've had to unlearn a lot of things that they were taught as children in the church, particularly about things like creation and so on. Do you have any suggestions or advice about what, what we should teach children? Yeah, two things I feel strongly about. We shouldn't ta start teaching children about Adam and Eve in the garden. I, I think I would actually forbid uh, that. And we should, uh, we, should never ask, uh, we should never ask children to draw God. Uh, and, uh, now, again, I'm not trying to say we should be vacuous about it. I think we should positively teach children about the Big Bang and about the long, slow cosmic evolution of the universe and how elegant and beautiful that actually is and how amazing it is and that creation is, is, is a, a, a work of great intelligence and complexity. So I would start, if you were start, start, starting at the beginning, I, of the universe, I'd start there. Right. So I I try and fit it into the context they get in science lessons at school. Okay. Instead of you start with a lot of myths that you then have to explain later are myths, and some people never get the later bit, so they um, <laughs> you know they keep on believing that. I think that's a great mistake. We we should start with the things that people in our culture currently believe in science and show how religion actually impinges on that. Namely, that it, some people think the universe is just a purposeless, uh, you know, unconscious um, uh, circulation of atoms and electrons, but actually um, it's as plausible at least to think uh, that the, the universe is a, a mathematically patterned, elegant and wise uh, um, cosmos with the purpose of uh, producing intelligent life by natural laws. That's a wonderful story. Uh, and you have to admit it's ambiguous that some people take this to be non-theistic. 
but that that is a, a, a theistic, a religious way of taking it that makes sense. Uh, and at the moment in the world, Christians are best placed to do this, and Jews, uh, Jews as well. Most great scientists happen to be Jewish, actually. <laughs> um, so that, uh, yeah, this this will be very natural. Uh, that's how I would do it. Well, you, you, you would distort the Big Bang Survey if you did it with children, because you know it's much more complex than even that, that beginning. That beginning is not really a beginning because you get into the boundless time. You know. right. so well, you teach them science, presumably. I mean, children get taught science in school. You just have to say, look, this is not the ultimate truth, yeah. but this is how you can understand yeah. it at your age. And, but that, that's all right. And later on, you may find it's even more complicated. <laughs> well, what, there's one more question for here. Now. I think we'll have to change kind of um, expand on point number five, which was about the nature of faith, which you described <coughs> as, as an encounter with God as opposed to a sort of as an ascent to intellectual philosophy. Yeah, that's right. Or is personal trust in Jesus Christ? Yeah. Whether there's any kind of, whether in with a kind of more liberal point of view, you're making a distinction with a with a previous approach to faith. Yes. What was the medieval definition of faith in the Catholic tradition, which was that if you sometimes read in very old-fashioned Catholic catechisms, which say that faith is the acceptance on authority of propositions, <laughs> right? Like God is three persons in one substance. So faith is just you accept that on authority. Okay? And that's very different from saying faith is personal trust in God. Of course, to have personal trust in God, you need to believe there's a God. So you do need to believe some things. But actually those things are capable of being put in, in very different ways. There's not just one way of putting it. And theologians know this, but they should tell other people that as well. St. Augustine, when he wrote his great book about the Trinity, said, I'm only saying God is three persons in one substance because I don't have any other words. It's not that uh, I really know what I'm talking about. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe on that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I was very much hoping that what would come out of today was a greater clarity of, 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 of what it is to be a, a liberal and to have an understand, uh, a greater understanding of liberal faith, approach to faith. And Keith, you've done that superbly. Thank you for that. And I think at the centre of all of that, what I found hugely encouraging, you've actually placed right at the centre of that the experience. And you said the views may have to change, but the experience remains. And you've talked about a personal transforming encounter with God in Christ. I mean, this, how more orthodox can you get than that? But you, you've done it in a way that is so exciting 